Well, will you turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6? I invite you to Proverbs chapter 6. And each week we have an outline for the message so that you can follow along. Those that are here in person, we have those at the main doors, at the entry to the auditorium. And those that are following on live stream, there's an outline button underneath or next to your media player. And I've asked you to turn to the book of Proverbs because we're continuing our series in that book that's titled, as you see on the screen, Living Wisely in a Foolish World. The first nine chapters of the 31 in the book of Proverbs are an introduction. That introduction lays a foundation for the remaining 22 chapters. Those 22 chapters contain those short, memorable sayings that we normally associate with Proverbs. The introduction that we're in in these first nine chapters contains a a series of lectures on wisdom from a father to a son. And last week in chapter 5, we saw the eighth of those lectures, warning about misuse of God's good gift of sex. One of the negative consequences of doing that was seen in verse 10 of that chapter in chapter 5. It says this, strangers will feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. Now it says that because as we saw last week, involvement with what that chapter called the adulterous woman could place the son in the hands of those outside the safe confines of his own community. If he goes outside to test the waters against all he's been taught and all he's been warned about, It can result in indebtedness to people who do not have his best interest at heart, probably the jealous husband and his family. I mentioned last week that evidently in that culture, the jealous husband could find compensation by making the offender his slave for life. Make him his slave for life because no monetary payment in itself could requite his, his anger. Although sexual immorality today may not lead to slavery, I said last week, it still leads to things like alimony and child support, broken homes, hurt and jealousy, lonely people, venereal disease, and on it goes. Now, I remind us of the economic consequences of sin from last week's chapter, because those will now be continued in chapter 6, in what's really not a new lesson, but it's an appendix to the previous one. Chapter 6 now is going to profile three kinds of people to avoid in order to teach us positive wisdom. That is, it tells us who to stay away from so that we are indeed free to do what the title of this series says, live wisely in a foolish world. So let's bow now, ask the Lord to help us, and we'll look at chapter 6 together. Father, thank you for allowing us now to quiet our hearts and still and focus our minds upon your word. It is your word. And so help me, help each of us to be open to your instruction therein. Help us, Lord, to be attentive so that we can apply and having applied, better please you with the lives that you have given us for that very purpose, to bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I say, first of all, in your outline, that the wise stay away from the debtor. And I say that because verse 1 says, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, 
If you have shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth. Now when it says in verse 1, you have put up security, it's saying you have pledged to make someone else's debt secure for the person from whom they borrowed. Someone else has borrowed money, but the person who's giving the loan is not confident, that is, does not feel secure that the borrower can pay it back, and so wants a second person to back it up in case they cannot or do not. So here's a young man who's agreed to be a cosigner on someone else's loan. If the borrower fails to pay back the loan, the son's on the hook for it, and the father is saying that in doing this, he's allowed himself to be trapped. Now, the book of Proverbs has a good bit to say about the wisdom and foolishness with regard to use of money, and we'll have at least one message later on in our series devoted to that. But here's an early warning about putting yourself in financial jeopardy by, in effect, co-signing for a loan for someone else. Now, if the person for whom you're doing it's a close relative, a son or a daughter perhaps, this is not saying that you could not co-sign for them as they get started in life. They perhaps have not yet been able to establish their own credit to purchase something worthy of credit. Something worthy of credit, by the way, is an appreciable asset, a house, perhaps an education, if you get a degree where you can make a living with, with it, then it's an appreciable asset. If a son or daughter or someone else you know well has the character to be trusted to pay off their debt, it's not necessarily foolish to help them by co-signing. But even then, be aware there's risk, as we're going to see in a bit. But here, the son has done this for someone who is, according to the end of verse 1, a stranger. Someone they do not know well enough to take this risk. Now this gets a little confusing because verse 1 also calls this stranger a neighbor. So you could conclude that this is someone that they know well. But the Hebrew words that are translated as neighbor and stranger both refer to someone outside the cosigner's family and community. Like the adulterous wife's family was in the last chapter. Chapter 20 of Proverbs speaks to a situation just like this one when it says this, Take the garment of one who puts up security for a stranger. Hold it in pledge because it is done for an outsider. So the cosigner gives their code or something that represents them as a token and pledge to pay the lender back if the stranger does not. But why would somebody serve as a cosigner? for someone outside their circle. Well, the passage does not specifically say why the son has done this, but there are a few possibilities. One is, he met this person, a person down on their luck, and his heart went out to them, and he impetuously signs on the dotted line, as it were. Another possibility is his own, the son's own greed because he may be charging the debtor for co-signing. The stranger approaches him for help, but he's not asking, he says, I'm not just asking for a handout, I'm willing to pay you for your service of being willing to do this. I need this loan, I want this loan, I can't get it unless I have somebody else on it. 
but I'm willing to remunerate you for doing this. He's willing to pay for the son's services, perhaps giving him a portion of his loan. And the son thinks, what's the harm? Easy, quick money. Whatever the reason that he got into the situation, it's placed him in financial danger. And the father is saying what I have in the outline. That the wise stay away from the debtor, which means they don't go there. Just don't, the father is saying, don't do that. All things being equal, unless you have someone in a special circumstance with whom you are close and can trust and all the things I said earlier, don't go there. Now, God told His people in places like Deuteronomy chapter 15 to be generous with the poor by loaning to them freely, and then every seven years forgiving their debts. So this warning here now in Proverbs chapter 6 is not against benevolence, but against foolishness. Helping someone with past debt and hardship is different from partnering with someone for future debt and possible hardship not only for yourself, but perhaps your family if they fail to pay. And it is indeed a risk, since the entire reason that this person needs you is because they can't obtain their own credit. So much a risk, as a matter of fact, that the United States government's Federal Trade Commission issues warnings on its website about the risks involved in cosigning. Let me read for you what it says. You are being asked to guarantee this debt. Think carefully before you do. If the borrower does not pay the debt, you will have to. Be sure you can afford to pay if you have to, and that you want to accept this responsibility. You may have to pay up to the full amount of the debt if the borrower does not pay. You may also have to pay late fees or collection costs, which increase this amount. The creditor can collect this debt from you without first trying to collect from the borrower. Now, it gives a caveat there. Depends on the state you're in with regard to that. The creditor can use the same collection methods against you that can be used against the borrower, including suing you and garnishing your wages. If this debt is ever in default, that fact may become a part of your credit record. So wisdom dictates one stay away from the debtor. But if you make the mistake of joining yourself foolishly by co-signing for someone who you haven't really vetted well enough, then I say in your outline, get out of there. <laughs> Don't go there. But if you've gone there, get out. Verse 3, so do this, my son, to free yourself since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands. Go to the point of exhaustion and give your neighbor no rest. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Your job, son, job one for you, is to get out of this foolish and risky situation. Don't give any respite to the creditor or the person for whom you've co-signed. Go to your neighbor and do all you can to get out. Don't even sleep until you've extricated yourself from this self-imposed trap. Now the urgency may be so that the borrower can return the money. 
or whatever he borrowed before it's used or used up. So get it done fast, because once it's been spent, now you're on the hook until it's all paid back, if it's all paid back. And so free yourself like a a gazelle, like a, a bird that's been snared. Now, gazelles were hunted by the principal method of using large natural stone corrals in the shape of triangles that were open at one end, and the gazelles would then be driven in and then trapped there. And a fowler is one who hunts fowl, birds. And you, son, are trapped like a hunted gazelle or a bird in a fowler's net. And both the gazelle and the bird, once they're aware that they're caught in a trap, they do one thing. They give all their attention to escaping the hunter's hand, and that's what you need to do. The wise stay away from the debtor and... I say they stay away from the deadbeat. The debtor and the deadbeat. Verse 6 now addresses what it calls the sluggard. These examples point to a people to avoid that we have in verses 1 through 5 with regard to the debtor and now in verses 6 through 11 with regard to the deadbeat, these examples of people to avoid go from bad to worse because you go from a foolish decision by the son, that's bad, but now we're going to someone else not called a son, just a sluggard. Bad to worse. The warning against co-signing in verses 1 through 5 is about protecting one's future well-being, first by not jeopardizing it, And now verses 6 through 11 are about protecting your future by providing for it. So don't jeopardize your future by doing something foolish. But now you also need to avoid people who don't do the the work of providing for it. But if you're like the sluggard, that is the lazy person, you can't do that. Proverbs 26 says this, As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. It's saying the sluggard is as attached to his bed as a door to its hinges. The door's not going anywhere, and neither is this guy. So the wise stay away from the deadbeat. Don't, certainly don't become the deadbeat because of a couple of things. One is what they learn from creation. And I say that because verse 6 says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. So think about the ant in contrast to the lazy person, the sluggard. Because woven into God's creation is the principle that we are to work for what we get. And this is seen in even the smallest of creatures, the ant. Because we were made for work. We were made to work. The Bible says in its opening chapters at creation, when God made the first man, the first woman, God said, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to notice, to work it and to take care of it. 
Now, many I have heard over the years have had the false understanding that work is a result of the curse, that work is a result of the entrance of sin into God's world because our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, and now we all come into this world as sinners. Part of that curse is work. That's not the case because this verse, notice, is Genesis chapter 2. Humanity was made to work before sin comes into the picture in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 3. So work is part of the created order. It is not a consequence of the fall. So work is not the result of the fall, but rather the difficulty of work is. After Adam and Eve sinned, now God pronounces curses upon the woman, upon the man, upon the serpent, and he says to Adam, he says to the man, cursed is the ground because of you, through painful toil you will eat food from it. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Before sin and before a curse on the environment because of sin, You didn't have these kinds of problems in doing your work, but now it's going to produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. So since all of us have some tendencies towards sloth and laziness, we need to be willing to humble ourselves to be instructed by, of all things, the ant. (laughs) And we learn a few things from it, as one commentator describes. First, the ant takes initiative. Verse 7. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. There is no boss ant standing around over the others with a whip. Ants do not report in to anybody. Nobody's ever seen a foot-dragging ant. An ant has within herself all the motivation she needs to make something of her life, and she never lets up. The ant takes initiative. Second, the ant works hard enough to store provisions. Verse 8, yet it stores its provisions in summer. Under the hot sun, she scurries about and gets the job done. You're at a 4th of July picnic. You're relaxing. The ants are carrying off the sugar one grain at a time, and they're going to be back for the Fritos, too. Now, I don't know if ants sweat, but if they do, they they don't care. They don't complain. They don't even wait. They're not above hard work, and in fact, they seem to love it. And third, the ant plans for the future. Because those provisions of summer are for winter. So he's not merely a hand to mouth consumer. Verse 8 says it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. The ant works today for tomorrow. She's not hoping life will go her way, not waiting for her ship to come in. She gets out ahead of the next season of life. So the wise stay away from the deadbeat because of what they learn from creation itself and from what they learn from condemnation. Condemnation. I say that because of what verse 9 says will happen. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. 
and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. How long will you lie there, lying there? Inactivity, indecision, will not make up his mind, will not make a decision. Always, what are you going to do? I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking I might, but not ever actually doing something. How long will you lie there? And then in verse 10, little is used three times to show the mindset that doesn't see how the lost time is adding up. Every bit of that little, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, keeps adding up. And the danger is increasing, not a little, a little, a little, but a lot, a lot, a lot. So that even those great theologians, the Bee Gees, ask, what you doing on your bed? You should be dancing. Yeah, they say. And verse 11 says, disaster will overtake you quickly. Like a thief, before you know it, and like an armed man that you can't stop, both of these, now notice, because you're only one event away from ruin. The reason this will happen quickly is because you have placed yourself in such a situation that one thing overtakes you, and you can't do anything about it. Friends, there are some lessons for us to learn out of this then. One... You don't want to be that guy. That's what the Bible is telling us, giving these negative examples for positive instruction for us. But also, the Bible teaches throughout, because work is part of the created order, then you and I are not to support people who refuse to work. Because that's a misuse of God's money. Do you remember that everything belongs to God? Everything you have, everything I have, belongs to God, and we have it as a stewardship, as a management on God's behalf. And in managing it on God's behalf, then, we are not to squander it by using it on those who, refuses to do, who refuse to do what God says, namely to work. So we don't support people who refuse to work. It's a misuse of God's money, and we are also harming the one that we think we're helping. Sometimes helping actually hurts because you're cementing that person in that erroneous way. The Bible says this in your New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote to two letters to a church in a city called Thessalonica. And if you go back to the first letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you'll find him talking to people who are, he uses the word idle, people who are just not busy, people who are not working. They're apparently living off of other people. And so he tells them that they are to work for their own, their own bread, do not be idle. But then he writes a second letter, 2 Thessalonians, and apparently there are people who are still doing that. They are disobeying his direct command for them to work for their own bread. And so in that second letter, in the last chapter of it, he says this, we gave you this rule. 
The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now notice, it's unwilling, not unable. Of course here, we're not talking about someone who can't work, we're talking about someone who won't work. For those who won't work now, God is saying, you don't do that. I would just say to you, parents, grandparents, many of us have family members who are in this kind of situation. And they come to you and your heart goes out to them and you have a blood relation with them and you, your inclination as a Christian is to, is to want to help. But you need to understand that you don't help someone move in the wrong direction. And so I have said to folks through the years who fit in that category in my own life, I have said this, I will always be there to help you go in the right direction. Always I will be there to help you go in the right direction. I will not help you go in the wrong direction. So if you decide now, I want to work, I'll help you get there. I'll take you. I'll make sure you have for the first several weeks before you get your first check what you need in order to get back, get on your feet, all that. I will always be there to help you go in the right direction. I will not help you move in the wrong direction. I commend that to you. The wise stay away from the debtor, the deadbeat, and from the destructive. These examples of people to avoid, as I said, they go from bad, the debtor, to worst, the deadbeat, but now to worst, the destructive, that verse 12 calls a troublemaker and a villain. In the first verse and in the third verse, the father spoke to a son about this bad decision of becoming a co-signer. And then beginning in verse 6, spoke to another worse character, but does not call him a son. But now he only talks not even to the person we're going to see here. (laughs) Doesn't even talk to them, just talks about this worse kind of person without even addressing him directly, just labeling him troublemaker, villain. Now before we go on, just with those two words, troublemaker and villain, worst, Because we watch too much TV and too many movies, I want to pause to ask you to envision when you read Troublemaker and Villain, what are you thinking of? Well, it's the bad guy or the bad gal. And you have some false image of what that is such that it makes you susceptible to who it really is. Let me say that again. If you have a false image of who that is, it makes you susceptible to who it really is. If you want to know what the troublemaker and the villain look like, glance next to you, or in front of you, or behind you, or look up here at me, or look in the mirror when you get home. You see, friends, we think evil looks evil. But most often it does not. It looks quite normal. All too normal. And it's why Christians are so, so vulnerable 
to false teachers. Because you can't believe the smiling guy on TV who's lying to you about your best life now can be bad or evil. And this is why Paul had to remind us that false teachers are effective precisely because they don't wear a sign that says false teacher. He said this, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. John MacArthur has commented on and lamented the fact over the years, he has said, Christians are just so gullible. When I hear people say simple things like, you know, he looks like a nice guy. And they don't even know the person. I just cringe. What does a nice guy look like? And perhaps more important, what does a bad guy look like? Hey, to my peeps. <laughs> bad guys and gals often look like nice guys and gals. And that's why they're so devastatingly effective in their destructive work. So what's the end game? What's the destructive work of this troublemaker and villain? Is it killing Christians? Is it embezzling from the church? Is it wanton and obvious sin, carousing, womanizing, prostituting, pimping, pushing, popping, fill in the blank? Look at verse 14. He or she always stirs up conflict. Verse 19, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. A troublemaker and villain does that. And they get away with that because they don't come off as doing that. And so we naively and foolishly and sometimes sinfully play along with their deceit. The wise stay away from the destructive, the troublemaker, the villain who divides, who stirs up conflict. That's what this passage is saying. That's why it says it twice. We stay away from the destructive to avoid harming others. You see, the other two people in this passage, the cosigner and the lazy person, harm primarily themselves. But the troublemaker, the villain, harms others. Verse 12, a troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eye, signals with his feet, motions with his fingers. This person employs his entire physical body to achieve the goal of separating people stirring up conflict. The mouth, of course, speaks ill of others, tells the person in front of them what the other people said about them, and then reminds them, I'm the only one who really has your back, so stick with me against them. And they're so nice, you can see it in their eyes how sincere they are. 
And they give you the knowing wink. When what they told you would happen is happening. The nonverbal thumbs up. The we got this. It's us against everybody. Here's the thing. See, they're telling you it's us against everybody. And they're telling everybody else it's us against everybody. And stirring up dissension. Verse 14, this person plots evil with deceit in his heart, stirs up conflict. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Once exposed, because there is little or no real character supporting them, people will turn on them and be appalled by what they've done in dividing others. Now, I say once exposed. How are they exposed? How does this lying, deceitful, person whose desire is to divide and create conflict. This is a divide and conquer strategy. Many agendas that can go with this. One most common is so that I'm the one left standing, so that I'm the one that everybody's looking at and looking to. If I can denigrate everybody else, then I look better. But once exposed, but how are they exposed? Let me give you a couple of things. First, realize what's at play here. They speak corruptly because they set out to deceive, according to verse 14, so that they can divide. They use these verbal and they're not verbal and nonverbal communication, and they draw you into their exclusive confidence. Hey, can I share a prayer request with you? I'm concerned about so and so. This is all spiritual, remember, because it's a prayer request. And of course, it's just between us. You can't tell anybody else. And in the midst of it, they start talking about their spouse, or they start talking about somebody else negatively. But you're taken in. You're listening. Realize what's at play here, friends. Second, realize that this is anyone who is using their tongue in an ungodly way to gossip, to slander, you know, the respectable sins. And Jerry Bridges wrote a whole book called that, Respectable Sins. And they all result in harm to others, in conflict, in division. The wise stay away from the destructive to avoid harming others and to avoid harm from God. God cares about this big time. Verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Now, I told you that conflict in this Creating division is the heart of this passage from verses 12 through 19. It's mentioned in verse 14. It's mentioned in the final line of the last verse in verse 19. But you know that it's the heart of this another way. And that is that in verse 16 it says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable. You see that? What does that mean? That's a, a device used in several places in your Bible in the Old Testament. And when you see that, there are six things, or there are three things, and four that. So some number plus one 
It's a device to show that the plus one is what I'm really concerned about. It's the last one. And in fact, all the others lead up to that. So the haughty eyes and the lying tongue and the heart that divides, all of that leads up to verse 19, the seventh thing, stirring up conflict in the community. And the seven things that the Lord hates are specific personal attitudes and actions. It's interesting that there's something of a contrasting parallel between what's listed here in verses 16 through 19, and if you go to your New Testament where Jesus began the famous Sermon on the Mount, you remember the Sermon on the Mount began with what we call the Beatitudes, blessed are they who, blessed, and Jesus goes through 11 verses in Matthew chapter 5 to talk about these blessings. There Jesus has seven blessed things to answer these seven hated things. And the first of those blessings, blessed are the poor in spirit, contrasts the first hated thing here, haughty eyes or a proud look. And the last one, the seventh one, where Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, is directly opposite the one who stirs up conflict. And so you have haughty eyes. The literal rendering here could be high eyes, or those who lift up their pupils. One commentator says, they don't look people in the eye to understand and engage them as equals, they look past them. It's describing the kind of person who's filled with pride, thinks too highly of himself, treats others as mere props and extras in his own blockbuster lifetime movie. Life revolves around self, and every Instagram selfie shows it. But he does it by deceit. He does it by lying. Verse 17, a lying tongue. Verse 19, a false witness. And everything in between, all designed to create conflict. In fact, when it says shedding of blood in verse 17, it's saying this is where it could go if it's not restrained in the interest of dividing and conquering. Now, friends, as I've gone through this, I've tried to have you think about not some villain with some dastardly laugh going about his or her evil. Think about a regular person. A person who's talked to you. Or maybe it's you that's talked to them. And you've used your tongue. You've used deceit. And you've created division. It happens everywhere. Workplaces, families, it happens in churches. It can only happen, hear this, if the listeners allow it. But if the listeners say, hey, when you mention somebody else's name to me negatively, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go talk to that person. Well, now the divide and conquer thing is messed up. Because when you get people at the same table, I can't lie anymore. The gig is up. And I guarantee you what that person will say because I have seen it multiple times. Hey, let's all get around the same table. No, no, no. And then they've got some spiritual reason why we can't do that. I'll, I'm just going to let it go. I'm going to let what they said go. 
well, if you're going to let what they said go, why were you telling me about it? You obviously haven't let it go. You're using it for some purpose, and we're going to get it straight. Thank God I have had people over the years who have had the wisdom to do that. And I have sat across a table with someone who says, I was told X about someone, about you, whatever. And I, if I'm in a position to know the deal, that's why they've come to me, and they find out the deal, it's been amazing over the years to see people dumbfounded, mouth agape, as they realized they had been lied to. Listen, friends, if you've had somebody tell you something about somebody else and you've been just listened to that and you've drawn conclusions about that and you haven't gone to the person about whom it was said and demanded that we get everybody at the table, you need to do that. Everybody here needs to do that. Everybody watching needs to do that. I would be willing to wager if I were a gambling man, there will be some mouths agape if that happens. Sometimes years later, the one who held false notions and assumed what they were told is finally, finally brought to a truth. But see, I can't, you can't take responsibility for figments of someone's imagination, things they, bit, they make up in their minds, or gossip that one does not bother to chase down and substantiate. And here's what's most important about all this. God hates it. God hates discord. God hates division created by a lying tongue for its own agenda. Here's your take-home truth. The wise know who to evade. I chose that word carefully, evade. Because as Christian people, we want to have relationships with as many people as possible because we want to be the light of Christ. We want to see people come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we evade. We're wise. We see what people are doing. We don't get pulled in to the pathway that they're taking. That's what's meant there. We're going to pray in just a moment. For some of us, we need to pray about this issue of saying things to people about other people. Perhaps more listening to things from other people about others without getting everyone at the same table. So let's pray about that. Let's confess that. Let's ask the Lord to forgive that. Let's act upon that. For others, here's what really gives you the ability to avoid having an agenda that divides people. Because with Jesus Christ, you become a person who loves people more than needs them. With Jesus Christ, you become a person who loves people more than you need them. You see, you love them, and therefore, you're not using them. You're not using them for your own agenda. And therefore, you're willing to tell them hard truths. Therefore, you're willing to confront them if they're sinning with their tongue to you because you love them more than you need them. That starts with Jesus. Because Jesus gives me the confidence, the security, all I need so that I don't have to have other people. I don't have to play. I don't have to go along. It starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, as we pray, some need to do this. If you've never come to Jesus Christ, realize that you're a sinner. And recognize that Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Repent 
of your sin. You can't repent of every sin you've ever committed. You can't count them. They're too numerous. Neither can I. What that means is repent of going your own way. Say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. Go your way. So you pray from your heart to God, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've sinned in so many ways. I too have sinned with my lips. I've sinned with my ears by listening. I've done so many things. I can't recount them, but I believe you died to pay the penalty for all of them, past, present, and future. I need that applied to me, and I want to follow you with my life. I'm going to go your way, not my way. Let's bow together before the Lord. Father, again, we thank you for the privilege of gathering, the freedom to be able to do that, and then the freed will that desires to do that, that you have given us. You've moved upon our hearts so that our desires have been changed, and so we we, we want to come together. We don't have to. We want to. We want to open your word. We want to be instructed. We want to conform to your character that is found therein. So help us to do that with what we have heard today, Lord. I pray that there are some who are recognizing that they have used their tongue, they have used their ears in ways that are not pleasing to you, in ways that you hate. They're confessing that and they're seeking your forgiveness for that. Lord, I pray as well that there might be some here who for the first time are hearing that it's Jesus Christ who is the one who alone can cover all of their sin, whatever it is, past, present, and future, and that it's a relationship with Him that begins a new life, a new perspective, and that they're appropriating that truth now, that they're coming to you believing who Jesus is and what He has done. Lord, we will give you the praise and the glory for all you accomplish in those that come to you, in the work that you're doing, in those who have already come to you. And we pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.